This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there. It's Jeremy Myers. You're listening to the One Verse Podcast. This is episode number 134. And I am pleased to welcome, interview Sean Lazar today for the podcast. It won't be just me talking about a Bible verse or two, but I will be interviewing author and speaker and director of publications at faithalone.org, Sean Lazar, about his book, chosen to serve. Now, during the interview, he does mention that there is a special coupon code for for you to get his book at 50% off, which is an excellent deal. So make sure you listen to the interview and uh, find out what that coupon code is so you can buy that book at 50% off. You can, of course, if you really want to, go to Amazon and buy it. It's $18 there, but why not get it at half off, right? So uh, we, we talk about that in the interview as well. Uh, and before we get to the interview, I do want to let you know that I have started a new course. I don't have any lessons up yet, but I'm hoping to do that later today or tomorrow to get the first lesson or two up there. And this course is on how to study the Bible. I've been studying and teaching the Bible for, wow, I don't know, 30 years maybe now, I guess. Uh, 35, 30, something like that. Anyway, um, And so I've learned a few things, and of course, I've also been to Bible college and seminary, but that doesn't mean a whole lot. If you enjoy this podcast and want to be able to study the Bible on your own, or if you've enjoyed some of my books, some of my blog posts and articles, uh, and you want to be able to research and read and understand Scripture on your very own so that you can teach it better uh, in a Bible study or to your family, or maybe you're a pastor or teacher or something like that, maybe you want to write books, have a podcast of your own, Uh, I... Uh, go through some of the steps and processes and strategies and foundational truths that help me study scripture. All right, so uh, I'm going to be teaching a lot of that, giving a lot of practical examples as well in my new online course, How to Study the Bible. Now, there will be a downloadable ebook available to you for those, for free for those who take the course. And eventually, I will put this out as an ebook and a paperback book on Amazon as well, and pretty much anywhere books are sold. Uh, now, normally, the price for this course is $197. Look, don't pay that. Please don't pay that. Uh, instead, join my online discipleship group, and you can take the entire course and all my other courses at no extra charge, no additional fee at all. Okay? So, um, That's sort of something for you to look forward to as we wind down 2018. Anyway, with all of that in mind, let's turn to my interview with Sean Lazar. And author. he's the author of an excellent book on election called Chosen to Serve. All right, well, I'm here with Sean Lazar. Sean, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Sean is an author of an excellent book on election called Chosen to Serve. But before we get to that, Sean, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, where you live, anything you find interesting about yourself. Okay, well, um, I I was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, which I miss a lot, for the food at least. And uh, I I lived there until I was 25, and I I left, immigrated to uh, the States here. Uh, I became a born-again Christian when I was 17. 
And um, I've been in ministry basically in one form or another since then. And um, I went to McGill for my Bachelor of Theology. I went to the Free University of Amsterdam uh, for my, my MA. And um, then I met the most beautiful redhead in the world, and she happened to live in Texas. And her grandparents consented to our marriage so long as the grandchildren were born in Texas. So now that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm here in Denton, Texas. And uh, I love it. I'm a Texan now. I consider myself a Texan. I don't wear the boots. I don't have a pickup truck, but I, I'm, I'm comfortable here. But I do miss home every once in a while. Um, and you were my predecessor at my current job. My current job is I was a, I am the editor of Grace and Focus magazine. You're your listeners can get a free subscription at faithalone.org. And I'm the director of publications for Grace Evangelical Society. We're a, we're a publishing and conference ministry where we're trying to promote the message of grace um, any way, shape, or form that we can. So that's our main goal, just 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 preaching grace, sharing the message of uh, eternal life. And um, so that's, that's what I do. I get the magazine out, get the books out, and this is just one of the things that I was able to do, write this book on, uh, on election. Yeah, I strongly recommend, if any of you listening do not get the Grace and Focus magazine, that you go ahead and get that. It's free, completely free. Just go to faithalone.org to get that. I get it myself. Also, where I work at the prison, uh, we get it there. I made sure we signed up to get it there, and also a lot of the books. In fact, I think last year I bought almost... Uh, um, a copy or two of every single book you guys have in your library so that we could make it available at uh, the prison for the guys who who are studying there. There's so much uh, legalistic theology that gets taught in prisons, well, in churches in general, that it's really nice to have some good grace-focused resources available for, for people. So anyway, I highly recommend people get that. That magazine comes out, what, at once every two months, right? Once every two months, that's right. And it has great Bible studies and articles, encouraging, uh, you know, articles from from lots of different pastors and lay people around the country, around the world even, right? Yeah, we have, yeah, we have some international authors. And um, basically, it's a, I always tell people, very few of you are going to read it from cover to cover. Some people do. A lot of people, like super fans, do. But you will, I guarantee you, you will find at least one article that is a blessing to you. It'll probably be, be be written by me, but you'll find at least one article that you really enjoy in that magazine. And like we say, it's free. I mean, totally free. And we don't really ask for money. There's a little ad in the magazine saying, hey, do you want to contribute? That's fine. But we don't send you annoying letters. So I encourage you to do that. And by the way, uh, Jeremy, I wanted to tell your listeners that um, I'm going to give them a coupon so they can buy this book that we're about to talk about that we're about to talk about it's the coupon code is Myers, your last name Myers, and they will be able to get 50% off of chosen to serve when they, if they want to purchase it at faithalone.org. Wow. Fantastic. I was not aware of that. That's going to be exciting. I'll make sure people know about that. We'll mention it um, at the end, beginning and end of the podcast as well. Um, But let's talk about the book then. Okay. So the book is titled chosen to serve and the subtitle is, why divine election is to service, not to eternal life. Yeah, that's right. I think the subtitle pretty well explains the content of the book, but uh, why don't you tell us more? What what big idea right. are you presenting in the book? Well, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was 17 years old, I didn't know it, and I became a Christian for the first time. Um, I had a lot to learn. And the very first, probably the very first major theological debate I had to cut my teeth on 
was this idea of does God choose people to go to heaven or to hell? And I was told that I had to choose between either being a Calvinist or an Arminian. And um, your readers, your listeners probably know that, you know, Calvinists believe that God chooses individuals based on his own kind of secret will. And he chooses some individuals to go to heaven. And then Calvinists kind of diverge. Some believe that he passes over others, thereby condemning them to hell. And others believe he more actively chooses who's going to go to hell. And then Arminians are kind of across the board a little bit. And they believe typically that uh, election is is conditional. God can see who is going to believe and then he in the future and then he elects them on that basis. And um, we've all kind of inherited this tradition, right, about these big questions. And the assumption is, the big assumption, is that God chooses individuals for eternal life. And um, that was an assumption that I was challenged by my boss, Bob Wilkin, uh, to question. He wrote about this a little bit in his book, uh, The Ten Most Misunderstood Words of the Bible. And he challenged me to go back to the Bible and read it with fresh eyes to determine whether it, what does it teach about election and predestination and God choosing and, and all those kind of uh, interesting philosophical and theological questions that people have? Um, and by the way, Calvinist and Arminian is not are not the only two options. I don't know if people, your your readers, realize that. Um, uh, I myself kind of developed a more of a Lutheran view, you might say. Uh, before writing this book, I, I assumed that uh, God did choose individuals for eternal life. But like Luther would always say, but we don't know what happens to everyone else. He was like, we, bi- the Bible doesn't say, so we're, we're just going to be agnostic about that. And that was kind of the Lutheran position, and that was kind of my position. Um, and then I started actually reading the Bible for myself. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it turns out it turns out the Bible's a little bit different than what the received traditions would tell us. Mm. I know you've looked at this too, right? You've examined this kind of question too in your book um, on Romans, and um, yeah, the rejustification of God. Yeah, the rejustification of God, which I wrote the uh, forward to. Great book, and it just really just dovetails so nicely with with with, uh, chosen to serve. But um, the basic big idea, the basic big conclusion I came to, and it totally shocked me because I was not expecting this whatsoever. I was expecting to have my kind of election beliefs um, reaffirmed by my study of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And what I found was easily, easily 90% of all the verses in the Bible that talk about God choosing, God electing, God predestining, easily 90% have nothing at all to do with choosing individuals to have eternal life. Mm. They're all, they all, 90% easily, unquestionably, no debates. They have to do with God choosing people, both individuals and groups, places and things for service. He chooses people to accomplish his will. And usually that will is kind of evangelistic. It's salvific. It's God trying to save the whole world, this whole world that he loves. But nonetheless, the choosing is for service, not for eternal life. And then there's just a handful of verses that are kind of maybe outside of that paradigm, but clearly most of them are about being chosen to serve, not for eternal life. Yeah, on that point, I was sort of refreshing myself reading your book over the last week or so, and I I was excited to see and surprised to see that 
uh, there in sort of the first 20 pages of the book, you do present all of the different people, places, and things that God chooses. And you even point out that God elects or chooses animals <laughs> in he some does. places. He does, yes, he does. That's and so, right. right, when people think that election or choosing is to eternal life, you know, what do you do with this, where God is electing animals? You know, what, is God choosing which animals receive eternal life and which ones don't? It just doesn't even make any sense. And then you even talk about choosing cities and choosing places. And so, again, it, it, it makes a whole lot more sense, as you point out in your book, that election is not to eternal life, but to service. And, and that and helps. Can I say something about yeah, that? Yeah, please and, do. And it's something about what I've been learning about just doing theology. And um, when, you're, when you're kind of coming up, trying to understand the biblical doctrine about a subject, you can't ever limit yourself to just the three or four key proof texts that always get passed around. If you're going to if you're going to look up a subject like salvation in the Bible, you have to look up all of the verses that talk about salvation, not just the ones that talk about let's say salvation from hell if if there are any such verses, but you have to look at every type of salvation that God talks about. And when you come up with your doctrine of let's say salvation, you have to come up you have to look at all the different types of salvation or kinds of salvation that God brings to the table and reveals to us in his word. And that was the challenge for me for election it turns out, like you say, God God chooses animals, <laughs> you know, to be his sacrifice, or God chooses Jerusalem to be his chosen city. And clearly that's not about giving a city eternal life. It's not about giving animals eternal life. So when we come to the doctrine of election, and that's what I try to do in my book, I try to look at all of the passages, all of the evidence of God choosing, yep. of God electing, and trying to come up with a picture of, okay, what the biblical doctrine of election is way bigger than what the traditions that the confessions assume, you know, and what you hear from the pulpit. It's way bigger than what people normally assume. And, you know, one of the things I really liked about what you just said a few minutes ago is that when you sat down to start this study, you sort of assumed that your study of the biblical passages was going to affirm or support what you already thought. But you were, I don't know, what we can say humble enough or open enough or something— to recognize that as you went along with this study, that it challenged and changed your view of election. Um, and, and, and so you were willing to change your theology to fit Scripture rather than twist and distort Scripture to fit your theology, right? That's abs- Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and that doesn't come easy. No. <laughs> that really doesn't come easy. It's hard to do uh, that. I'm lucky, I'm lucky in certain ways because— I don't have the pressure that a lot of other theologians and pastors have. Um, you know, for hundreds of years, you know this, for hundreds of years, Christians just did not have the freedom to read the Bible for themselves and come to conclusions that were different than, let's say, the state churches that were kind of just all over Europe and and, and, and elsewhere. It used to be that whatever state you were born in, you were a member at birth of that state church, Lutheran, Anglican, uh, whatever, Reformed. And if you became a minister or a pastor, you were expected to just learn and then repeat those received traditions. You know, you, So whatever, whatever your church believed, you were expected to teach that. But we're in this great position nowadays where uh, I'm a Baptist. I, no one cares what I believe, really. <laughs> so I can just read the Bible for myself and just come to these, you know, different conclusions than, than, than what other people have been, did not see in the scripture. And, um, so I had no pressure, basically. There's no pressure for me to come to a particular conclusion of, of what election is. I was able to just read it uh, for myself. And, um, like, like you said, and like I said, I mean, 
I, I really honestly 100% believed that the Bible taught God chose, chose individuals to eternal life. I don't know why I believe that. I don't know why now. It's because I never read it for myself. I read the proof texts and I had glasses on. I, I use this example um, in, the, in the book, um, oh, The Wizard of Oz. Uh, it's different from the movie. In the movie, uh, um, Dorothy and her companions go to this emerald city. But in the book, it's not really an emerald city. It's just a normal city, and everyone has to wear emerald-colored glasses to hmm. make them think that the city looks emerald. That's part of the wizard's illusion. That's part of his deception. Hmm. And what I kind of found was I had been reading the Bible with these green tinted glasses with this, these election tint, these tradition tinted glasses. And I, I was, I was, I was putting meaning into the text rather than getting meaning out of the text. You yeah. know, I, I'm sure your listeners know the difference between imposing meaning and actually trying to hear what the text is actually saying. Yeah. We and, do try to talk about that a lot in the podcast. And you know what? That's a great illustration about the glasses. Another illustration, which you brought out in your book, and right after this, we'll get into looking some verses. Um, yeah, uh, from Scripture, uh, is you bring out, and I've mentioned this on my podcast recently as well, you bring out, in fact, one week from today, we have here in the United States an election for political office, and mm-hmm. uh, you even talk about this in your book on page 19 uh, that I'm looking at here, and um, I've I found that this illustration really helps also. When we go to the polls, when people who vote next Tuesday uh, we are electing, choosing certain people to, to what? To, are we are we choosing who's going to go to heaven when they die or receive eternal life? No, uh, we're we're electing, choosing people to serve the country, even serve us in a way, right? To perform right, certain right. tasks or functions, and I've just found that illustration really helps people understand the biblical doctrine of election as well, because it's really not that much different, is it? No, it isn't. That's and that is so true. I'm so glad you brought that up. I mean, uh, election is not something that only God does, according to the Bible. You know, election is something we all do. I elected my wife when I chose to marry her, and when she she elected me when she chose to marry me. Um, we we'll, we we'll, we choose people to serve us, and yes, we're going to be voting for uh, our, uh, the senators and, and and the congressmen in a few days, and um, we're going to be electing them. You know, and and that very much reflects what God is doing in the Bible in terms of. Yep. Good. All right. Well, look. Let's uh, talk about some texts now. Really, some of the uh, two major texts that people point to are Romans nine and Ephesians one. But I've just recently done some podcast episodes on those. So even though you have some excellent explanations of those passages in your book. Uh, we're going to skip over those and uh, encourage people to buy your book, Chosen to Serve, from faithalone.org, uh, with the coupon code Myers, right, for 50% off. That's right. <laughs> and uh, But let's look at some of these other texts that people often reference or quote when they are using, trying to use, say, proof texts from the Bible to support um, these other views of election, that election is to eternal life. So one of these, let's just look at, say, Acts 13, 48. And let okay. me just read it, and then I'll uh, let you sort of explain how to understand it. So Acts 13, 48 says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life 
believe. Now, the word election's not really here, is it? No, and that's okay. So this this is very interesting because I have a quote in the book from um, uh, Arthur Pink. Arthur Pink, the famous uh, Calvinist uh, theologian from uh, you know bygone era. Yeah, and he basically says. He doesn't say this exactly. He says basically this is a home run for Calvinism. This mm. verse is a home run for the Calvinist view that God chooses people for eternal life. In fact, he says, I have the quote on uh, page 150 of the book. He says, nothing will ever be able to reconcile this and similar passages to the mind of the natural man. So he's basically saying only an unregenerate person could avoid seeing election in <laughs> Acts 13:48. So uh so that's a very that's a very that's a bold statement. Yeah. All right. So let's see if that holds up to scrutiny. And first and foremost, the first thing you notice when you read that verse is what you just recognized. Acts 13:48 lacks all of the classic terms in the election and predestination debate. God isn't mentioned. Election isn't mentioned. Predestination isn't mentioned. Chosen being chosen isn't mentioned. None of those things are mentioned. What you have is this word appointed, and it's a it's a very strange word. I believe it's this is the only occurrence in all of the New Testament of this word appointed in Greek. It's tetagnoi, and it's kind of like a military term or a kind of a civil service term where you would be enrolled, you would be appointed to this kind of civil service role uh, in, in the ancient world. And so what do you do with that? For Arthur Pink, it is home run for Calvinism. Um, but as I was studying this, I was surprised at how many commentators all made the same point. They all said, well, they all said, first of all, that this is verse 48 is parallel to verse 46. Do you mind reading that for us? Verse 46. Uh, where is it? I'm actually reading uh, Acts, sorry, book. Acts 13. I, I, I have it in front of me. Acts 13, oh, 46, right? It's just, there's just the two verses beforehand and in the Bible. And it says, I'm reading from the new King James. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, wait, so why are they, who's rejecting it? Who's rejecting it? They're rejecting it. Who's, is God forcing them to reject it? No, there's no, there's no, there's no sense that God is forcing these Jews to reject the word. Paul puts all of the blame upon them. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of an everlasting life, who's judging them unworthy of everlasting life? Is it God? Is God making this kind of selection that they're going to go to hell? Not according to Paul. According to Paul, it's their own fault. They're mm. responsible. Since you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Mm. And so in verse 46 and 48, you have eternal life or everlasting life mentioned. And they're parallel, but they're kind of an antithesis of each other. So we call that antithetically parallel. Um, in verse 46, clearly Paul puts the blame for their rejection of the gospel and their rejection of eternal life on themselves. It's their own fault. And so what would we expect in verse 48? I mean, if the response, if the people are held responsible in 46, what would you expect in verse 48? Well, what these commentators have said, and I, I list them and I give quotes from them in the book, they say this word appointed 
in most translations is kind of translated as a in a passive form so that uh, it kind of gives the sense that these Gentiles were totally passive in being appointed. But what these commentators note is that the appointed, appointed could also be translated as a re, in a reflexive sense where they appoint themselves. And so I give several quotes about of um, uh, quotes from from commentators who suggest that's the much that's the better translation. So for example, um, David J. Williams says he translates it this way. He thinks it should be translated in the middle voice in a reflexive sense. And he says, as many as had set themselves by their response to the Spirit's prompting for eternal life became believers. Yeah. Uh, another translation is, as many as had predisposed themselves to eternal life believed. That's a very different reading of Acts 13, uh, 48, isn't it? Sure, sure is. Um, and it makes sense, I argue in the book, it makes sense of the, the whole chapter, chapter 13. Um, if, you're, if your listeners would turn there to Acts chapter 13, they'll see at the very beginning of the chapter, Paul and Barnabas uh, end up in this place called Antioch, Pisidian, Pisidian Antioch. And they go meet with, um, sorry, sorry, this, I'm, I'm sorry, correction there. They go to the island of Paphos. And they meet a proconsul named Sergius Paulus. That's in, this is in verse 6, chapter 13, verse 6. And they meet this false prophet. He kind of has a right-hand man named Bar-Jesus. And, and Luke, the writer of Acts, is so clear in verse 6 to kind of point us to uh, whether or not how Bar-Jesus and Sergius Paulus differed in, in respect with respect to their openness to the truth. So in verse 6, Luke, who's writing Acts, makes very clear that this bar Jesus is a sorcerer and a false prophet. And then in verse 7, look how he describes Sergius Paulus. So this false prophet, a Jew whose name was bar Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So Sergius Paulus is intelligent. He's open. He wants to hear the word of God. But then what does Barnabas do? What does Bar-Jesus do? He's given a, a, his other name in verse 8. He withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Anyway, so you have this opening in, verse, in chapter 13 of two very different attitudes to the gospel. You have a closed, don't even want to hear the truth for yourself, and you don't want anyone else to hear the truth. And then you have the procon, and he's Jewish. You know, that's an important point in chapter 13. Then you have the Gentile, Sergius Paulus, intelligent, open to the truth, wanting to hear the word of God. And as the chapter kind of progresses, you see those two attitudes played out until finally you get to verse um, 46 and 48, where Paul now is, is, is in, um, is in uh, Antioch. And he's getting a, two very different responses to the gospel. The Jews are resisting. The, the Gentiles are so open to it. And then Paul comes to this dramatic pronouncement in Acts 13, 46 and 48. And he says to the Jews, as we just read, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And then by in 48, the Gentiles believe. And I think the better reading is, instead of saying, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. I think these commentators are right. It should read something more like, and as many as were predisposed to eternal life believed, because that fits perfectly with the whole tenor and the, and the message of the chapter. 
that if you are close to the truth, then you're going to reap the, the, the effects of being close to the truth. But if you're open to the truth, God is going to respect that, see that, and he's going to send the, the message of the gospel to you, and you will have eternal life when you believe in yeah. that saving. That's fantastic. Let me put you on the spot a little bit. I've had this same discussion with some Calvinists, and their response to this is sort of uh, along these lines. Uh, they would say something like, well, you know that there's nothing we can do to earn our eternal life, but you're saying that these Gentiles had predisposed themselves or were open to the gospel, and that's why they believed. And so therefore, there is something that people are contributing to their own eternal life. And is that, I mean, how would you respond to that? Okay, so that is a great question. And part of rethinking all of these debates, I think part of it is is, is going to have to include rethinking the tea and tulip, rethinking this idea of total depravity means that we are totally unable. Right. Um, uh, my next big project is actually writing a book on the question of Teague, on the question of Tulip. Are we actually unable? How does God, you know, work with that? Big picture answer is, and also comes from Acts, it looks like people are capable of groping after God, seeking after God, even though they are unregenerate. And the classic example of that in Acts, again, we're still in Acts, by the way, the book of Acts is, in my opinion, the more I read it, the more I study it, the more I discuss it with other people, really anti-Calvinistic. Because you have, for example, this man, Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He's unregenerate. And yet he is considered, his, his good works of building a synagogue and taking care of the Jews has been noticed by God. God notices this man's um, uh, piety. God respects it. He doesn't save him on the basis of it. He does yep. not save him on the basis. That piety doesn't earn salvation. That piety doesn't contribute to what the cross lacks. The cross lacks nothing. The cross is the only work God requires for salvation. But God notices that this man is groping. Um, Paul, when he's on the on Mars Hill and he's talking, he's assuming that the philosophers there uh, were able to reason from their experience to at least have some type of truth about God, about this unknown God. Even though they're unregenerate, Paul assumes that they're able to grope, to grope after God if perchance they may even find him. That's how the, the quote yep. goes. I forget which verse that is. Um, so I would say, biblically speaking, unregenerate people can search after God, but that search is non-meritorious. It's not part, uh, it's not the basis upon which you are saved. It's not a work that's that gains you merit in God's sight so that you will be saved by it. We're saved by one condition, one condition only, by faith apart from works. But um, you need to be searching for the truth and open to it. And uh, that appears biblically to be people's responsibility, their own responsibility to be either open or closed to the truth. If you're closed, then God is still searching for you, still wooing you, still working in your life. But if you're open, then God can send the saving message to you so that you can believe it. Um, one of the people I work with, Ken Yates, has written quite a bit about this, uh, Cornelius. If you go to faithalone.org and search Ken Yates, and then the name Cornelius, you'll find um, several articles about this topic, the, about the ability of unregenerate people 
to search after God. That's excellent. I'll try to find that myself and include a link to it in the show notes for this podcast episode so people can find it easily. But yeah, if, if you're listening to this and don't have access to my website, next time you're online, just go to faithalone.org, search for Ken Yates, Cornelius, to find out more about that. That's good. And it's a huge topic, and, and I imagine that brief explanation doesn't um, satisfy everybody, but at least you should research it and study it more, read up more on it, and um, see what Scripture says about this. And we're looking forward to your book, your next book on total depravity? Yes, it's going to be called Able to Believe. That's going to be the main title, and it should be available uh, spring of, of 2019. Um, it is so tricky, let me tell you. It's, I, thought, I thought election was tricky. It turned out election was pretty straightforward. <laughs> but this total depravity thing is very tricky because— on the election issue, what I found the Bible to teach is just so different. Like it's just it's it's just having a totally different conversation than what most theologians are having about election. But total depravity is there's a lot more commonality. There's a lot more that we get right. It's a lot more nuanced, and it's not a total rejection of of the tea and tulip. Mm. There is a lot of truth there, but it's not quite it's not quite what most people make of it. Good. Well, we'll look forward to that book. Let's try to fit in one or two more texts, Sean. We have time? Yeah. Okay, let's go to an easy one, at least one that I think is easy. You you devote uh, in your book like uh, three or four pages to it, so should be a quick explanation. First Peter 1, 2, I hear this one quoted a lot, but uh, once you look at it, I think the explanation is simple. It says this, um, Peter's writing, obviously, so I'm jumping right into the middle of a sentence he says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You mentioned earlier at the podcast, there's sort of two views, the Calvinistic view and the Arminian view. This one tends to be quoted more by the Arminians, right? Because it's elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So they would say God looks forward in time. But what is, yeah, what is, right. what is Peter right. talking so about here? Um, so one of the things that you as absolutely clear, and I, I go through this uh, in, the, in the early chapters of my book, is that in the Old Testament, the Jews are God's chosen people. Mm-hmm. God has plans for the Jews. They're his chosen people, bar none. And most of the most uses of the biblical word for election, and the Hebrew like Bahar, is mostly for God choosing uh, the Jews. And guess who Peter is writing to in the very first chapter of his epistle? He's writing to the dispersion. That's like kind of the classic term for, for Jewish people living in uh, outside of Israel, uh, all around the Roman Empire. And so it looks like Peter is writing to Christian Jews, and he's calling. So when he's talking about their election, it seems to me that he's talking about them uh, not only as Jews, but principally as Jews. They're God's chosen people. Um, that doesn't mean they were chosen individually for eternal life. The Jews were chosen for a, a vocational purpose. They were chosen to serve God. They were chosen... There, there is a salvific component to their choosing, chosenness in the sense that God chose to bring the Messiah through the Jewish people. God chose to, to deliver the prophecies about salvation, the message of salvation through the Jewish prophets and, and through the kings and through the writers. And so God chose the Jews to be a vehicle of the message of salvation for the entire world. Um, but he did not choose them individually to have eternal life. That was not the purpose of their election. And so... The way I read 1 Peter 1, verse 2, is that Peter is talking talking to them as Jewish believers who have been chosen, and God knew beforehand the plans and purposes that he has 
for choosing the Jews as as a people, as a group. Um, is that how you read it, or do you? Yep. Are you, are you nope, that's exactly are how. You close. Oh, I'm in 100 agreement. That's exactly right. I mean, it's it's obvious there from verse from verse one. He's talking about the Jewish people, and then yes, the foreknowledge, 100. percent It's not that God is looking forward in time to determine who you know. Not, it has nothing to do with that. It's God's plan from eternity to choose, elect the Jewish people to help bring his plans and purposes on this world to fruition, right? I think so. And I want to challenge your listeners that sometimes we want the Bible to give us answers that it is just not prepared to get. We want the Bible to answer these interesting philosophical questions about how God relates to time. Yep. How does God, you know, relate to future events? Are they certain? Are they uncertain? What's the truth value of 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 uh, a statement of something that's going to occur in the future? And the Bible doesn't really go into that philosophy. You know, the Bible is going to reveal to us what God wants to reveal to us. And sometimes I, I like to use. There's a philosophical term that I like. It's called deflationary. It's like it's like deflating a balloon. You expect this big answer, but then God kind of gives you this much more down-to-earth kind of insight into how he works. And um, so I definitely have a deflationary reading of, of, of 1 Peter 1, 2. It's just God chose the Jews for a purpose, yep. and he knows what that purpose is. Beautiful. I love it. Good. Deflationary. I'm going to remember that. Yeah, sometimes the Bible doesn't answer the questions we wish it would. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, Paul, I love this from Luther. Luther Luther distinguished between the scholastics. So, so, so Luther, you know, was an Augustinian monk. And anyways, Martin Luther, he had this disputation against scholastic philosophy, and he hated scholastic philosophy. He realized how corrupt it was uh, because scholastic philosophy made these distinctions that were not biblical. And Luther had this saying, Luther said we should distinguish between the hidden God and the revealed God. And we have nothing to do with the hidden God. If God has not revealed it to us, we have nothing to do with that. What we have to do with is the revealed God. And for us, God reveals to himself in scripture. So be content. That is so hard to do because I'm a <laughs> philosophically inclined guy. I've been working on this PhD in philosophy for like 10 years now. I love philosophy, and it's so hard to limit myself to what got to the revealed God, to yeah. what he has chosen to reveal to us. Mm. Perfect. All right, let's do one more real quick. Uh, also from Peter, but this time over in Second Peter. And this is just sort of a weird phrase here that Peter uses, so I'm just curious on how you explain it. I mean, I know from your book, Chosen to Serve, but let's hear it for the podcast as well. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Paul says, Therefore, brethren... Be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and so on. He goes on from there. Okay, so that's verse uh, verse 10. So what is Peter talking about here? How do we make our calling and election sure? And how does your view specifically on election help us understand this verse? Right. So if you come to that text with a typical either Calvinist or Arminian view that all election, every time that word appears, it has to do with God choosing individuals to eternal life. Yep. Then you're going to read that verse and you're going to think, okay, how can I be sure that God has chosen me right. to have eternal life? And you're going to start becoming a fruit inspector and you're going to try to look at, you're going to start second guessing your heart and your thoughts and your actions. And you're just going to, you're just going to you lose your assurance and you're yes. just going to, if you're serious, <laughs> if you're serious about it, uh, you might even have a nervous breakdown. You know, a lot of people just got so wrapped up in this idea. Has God chosen me for eternal life? But as we've been saying, 
that's not what election is about. It's about God choosing us to serve. And so in this question, in this verse, I should say, um, basically Peter is saying, telling them that they need to make sure that they are, God has chosen them for a purpose. And just because God chose you for a purpose doesn't mean you're going to fulfill that purpose well. Okay. For example, God chose King Saul to be king. Saul was elected to be king. Did he do a good job or a bad job at being king? Mm. Did he did he did he make his calling and election sure or not? He failed. He flunked. He did a terrible job, and he paid the price for it. When Paul, uh, uh, when God chose uh, Jonah to be a prophet, Jonah was elected, chosen to be a prophet. Did he do a good job or a bad job in his election and calling as a prophet? Well, initially he did a terrible job, right? He ran away from God and, and um, all that stuff. Um, so we as Christians have a calling from God. Uh, Ephesians um, Ephesians kind of talks about this. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Everyone knows 2 Ephesians 8 and 9 because it's we like to quote that as a, as a, as a salvation verse, you know, as an evangelistic verse. But people usually forget about verse 10. Verse 10 in Ephesians 2, 10 calls about why we're chosen. And we're chosen to do good works, right? We're chosen to serve. We're chosen to, Paul called, talks about this in Galatians, we uh, serve one another in love. That's what we're called to do as believers. And so I think Peter is basically just saying, make sure that you're living out that calling uh, because God has called you to serve. He's chosen you to serve. And there's a reward, and it's very interesting, there's a reward for you if you serve well, is that you get to co-reign with Christ. You get to live, you get to reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Mm. And um, long story short, that's how I read that verse. Uh, make sure you are living the Christian life so that you can fulfill your ultimate calling, your ultimate chosenness, which is to reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, you had some great insights in your book about the uh, being chosen for um, inheritance and and some of those other things as well related to sort of what you just hinted at there. So just sort of in closing on this, you know, let's just get real practical here. How is this way of reading Scripture about election going to help the average Christian? Uh, not just right, not well, just understanding Scripture, but also in their life as, you know, following Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, I find that people, I, I find that people need to have a clearly defined purpose. Most people need to have a clearly defined purpose in order to function well. It's like playing a game. Like, if, if I give my kids, like, a bunch of... Uh, 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 pieces on a board and I don't tell them how to play the game, it just turns to chaos. But if they know what the pieces are for and the plays that they're supposed to make, they can concentrate on playing the game better and improving. And I think the doctrine of election kind of just focuses you on what your purpose is as a Christian. So on one hand, this doctrine of election, this version, this, this reading of election in the Bible kind of lets you just believe in Jesus for eternal life and have assurance of salvation just by believing in that promise. And you, you, you don't, you, you don't have to worry about, am I elect? Am I, am I, do I, am I showing fruits of being a, an elect person, a predestined person, or am I failing? And should I worry about if I'm going to go to hell? So this reading of election eliminates all of those questions, mm. all of those doubts, and you can just simply believe in Jesus for eternal life and you can have assurance of that basis. 
And on the other hand, it focuses your discipleship life, yes. your life for Christ. And you can know that you have a definite, no matter who you are, no matter, even though you might not think that you're important in your eyes, you are important in God's eyes. He has a calling and, a, and he has chosen you personally to serve. And you are responsible to God for serving well. You have a role to play and uh, the doctrine of election uh, helps you know what that role is. Principally, to make it as simple as possible, your your role to play in 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 in, in salvation history is to uh, love the neighbors that you meet in your vocation. If you're a father, your goal is to love your children. If you're a husband, your your goal is to love your wife. If you're a boss, it's your employees. If you're an employee, love your boss. If you're a church member, the other church members. Do you see where I'm going with this? Mm. You're chosen to serve and love the people around you. I love it. It really makes the doctrine of election something that's a lot more practical, and also something that's not going to lead to all these arguments and debates and division that has happened in the church because of that old way of viewing election. This way helps it turn it into a way that we actually are loving one another and those around us, so I love that. Well, thank you, Sean. And uh, your book, Chosen to Serve, obviously available on Amazon, but I recommend the readers get it instead through faithalone.org, right? Because they can use the coupon code Myers, M-Y-E-R-S, to get 50% off. That's a fantastic deal. Thank you very much. I might buy a couple copies myself um, uh, for the prison. Uh, but other than that, how can people connect with you, learn about your other books, get in contact with you if, if they want to... Do, do you go speak at churches and stuff or, or conferences? What do you do? Yeah, go to faithalone.org and we have an event schedule and I, we speak across the across the country. We have we hold about six regional conferences per year. Um, you can reach me at Sean, S-H-A-W-N, at faithalone.org. Um, you can follow me on Facebook. Um and uh, be sure, yeah, definitely, We I have a blog that comes out every day if you like to read this kind of thing on a daily basis, then you can sign up for that at faithalone.org. But just go to faithalone.org and everything you can possibly want to know about us and our ministry and this message and these things are all available there. That's fantastic. And yeah, I highly recommend, if you're on Facebook, follow Sean on Facebook, mainly because of the stories he shares about his kids. <laughs> oh, you have such characters as kids, Zane and Daphne, and the things they say and do. I laugh. I crack up every time I read those stories. It's hilarious. So <laughs> It's amazing how many times I hear that. I go across the country and people say, I just love your stories about your kids. And for me, I don't find them funny at the moment. In the moment, I only find it funny afterwards. In the moment, I have steam coming out of my ears. But uh, Facebook is my therapy. And um, But Jeremy, it has been such a pleasure talking to you about this. Thank you very much for having me on your oh, show. Oh, thank you for being on the show. And once again, just for everybody, look, get chosen to serve. Go to faithalone.org. Uh, sign up for their Grace and Focus uh, magazine and get some of their other books and especially get Sean's book, Chosen to Serve, uh, 50% off using coupon code Myers, M-Y-E-R-S. Sean, thank you very, very much. And I hope to talk to you again when your book on uh, Tulip comes out. Very good. Thank you, Jeremy. All right.